בן בו לקון לאנגרי. סנט למון בעיה פמאין ויפורה. Welcome to Khan Langry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley, and with me down the road a ways is Jake Le- Malloy. Hello. Sorry, Jake Malloy. I don't know <laughs> how that met me up. Mm-hmm. And uh, over in sunny California, we have David J. Peterson. <laughs> oh no, what is he going to do this time? Did you not see that? I said, hi, how are you in ASL? Oh, ah, sure. yes, because we are talking about, um, well, uh, mostly we're going to be talking about sign languages, but in general, sort of non-vocal or non, non-oral language. Uh, so, uh, you know, anything that's not speaking and hearing. Uh, we're going to be talking about today, uh, mostly sign language, because frankly, there are two main modalities for, um, human languages. It, they are the, um, uh, speaking and hearing. And, uh, so, you know, the, the sound, and then there's the visual, visual gestural modality, which is sign languages. And there are other things. There are, Uh, you know, in certain cases, people who communicate by touch uh, and can do full language that way. But uh, mm-hmm. much, much more people do sign languages. Um, and, um, you know, the, my uh, co-hosts for, for the, this episode um, have some experience. David, you, um, you know ASL, right? And... Didn't you create a, a, an invented sign language? Yeah, I also thought that I was being brought here to discuss my visual language X. Uh-huh. You said non-vocal language, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I like the way that you asked that. E- essentially, though, the, the created sign language I created was just an instantiation of... my created IPA for sign language. That was kind of the main thing I did. The sign language IPA, SLIPA. <laughs> yeah, I created that back in graduate school. It has not weathered so well, but it still right. exists. Nobody, not, I don't think it's seen much use, has it? Well, it's an IPA. And honestly, there haven't been a lot of people that have really taken up the range. in done sign languages, con sign languages, which is kind of a bummer. Um, but also, um, just the way that conlangers rarely use straight IPA when just transcribing their own languages. That was supposed to be the function of, of SLIPA as well. That is, it was there to describe whatever romanization that you came up with for your sign language. Because I think that's going to be the easier way to handle it. If you just start writing um, signs like words that have analogs to, uh, to letters, um, it's a little bit you know, just easier to type. 
Um, and then for others, you can go back and have some precise descriptions of exactly how those letters are supposed to map onto movement. Right. Yeah. The thing is, I just haven't seen a whole lot of uh, invented sign languages myself, too. Uh, uh, I, I would like to see more signed conlangs. We, the only one I know that we featured was um, Rikchik, which is an alien sign language. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, definitely interesting in its own right, but, you know, you can't speak it without lots of tentacles. Uh, <laughs> yeah, bas basically, you can just write it. It's really interesting. As I pointed out to Dennis, it's not as if he created the Rick Chick language. He created a Rick Chick language. That's just, it's like, imagine if you invented humans and then invented a conlang for him and said, well, that's the human conlang. <laughs> you know, you, there's so much more that can be done with Rick Chicks, you know, well, in this entire yeah. planet where there are many Rick Chick societies and Rick Chick nations that war with one another and that hate one another. This could be yes. sense. Uh, that would be fun. Could be the, new, the new Il Bethesad. Yeah. Um, but uh, we're 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 going to keep this discussion to humans because if we are going to we've talked about alien conlangs before if we are going to try to talk about alien sign language languages we've got to talk about uh radically different physiology and all sorts of things but uh uh and jake what what is your background with sign languages just really quick uh yeah i mean mostly i just dabble my i have an aunt who is an interpreter mm -hmm. um so i i have some bit of information there and then uh when my kids were younger they're still pretty young but when they were younger we would uh, do a little bit of sign with them um but it never i never developed fluency right but at best i'm i can do some signed english i guess would be the style not not really asl right so um we're actually going to talk a little bit about um uh uh, since Jake here is a lot into like language and society, we're going to have a little bit of, um, we're going to talk about a little bit about also like the uses of, um, you know, the purpose or the context where you use a non-vocal language, uh, particularly a sign language, um, and also how they can relate to um, spoken languages in the environment. Um, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about, um, like features of the languages themselves, grammatical and phonological features. And yes, we do talk about phonology in sign languages <laughs> just by convention. Um, so, uh, uh, this first part of it, I think we're going to be looking a lot at the purpose of a, um, a sign language that could help you if you are situating it in a con world or, you know, maybe if you want to make a signed oxlang, you want to think about, uh, who's going to be using language sign languages in the world. Uh, any of that stuff. So, um, Jake, I'm going to hand it to you first and you get us started with, uh, your sort of first section here. Uh, yeah, great. Uh, so one of the things, when I when I was thinking about dealing with sign languages and how, so of course, um, you know, most natural sign languages developed as a 
a way for people who can't hear to interact and communicate. Um, so there's that aspect. Another popular, um, the Plains Indian Sign Language was a means of a, to be a lingua franca between different tribes who had different spoken languages. Um, and so thinking about what the purpose is of language. And then we also have various signs that are maybe not full languages, but you use them in different ways. Um, so, for example, most militaries will have some sort of um, set of signs that they use for uh, field operations where they want to be silent, mm-hmm. different things like that, of course. And so part of that depends on, you know, do you want it to be secretive or do you want it to be easily recognizable? You know, you see two different versions of that. Uh, for example, like on a baseball field, right, you have umpires who um, use signs that everyone needs to be able to know. And then you have base coaches and, and catchers using signs that they only want um, one, you know, a particular group to know and maybe don't want anyone else to, to see it or know it uh, in, in the case of like co- base coaches. Right. And that's not, um, you know, that's, that's not a full language as you, you said. Right. Those are like a specific set of meaningful gestures that are just sort of used on their own but it they it is um an interesting use of like a non-vocal uh thing uh the um so and that i like that idea of you know on the baseball field you have those two different uses that require two different things because um the umpire's signs i think those are codified in a rule book right so right that mm-hmm. so that it's standardized and everybody knows knows that whereas the 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 signs that the coach uses with the players or the, like the catcher and the the baseman use those are particular to the team and the teams will like change them up between games and stuff uh, okay uh, i i i'm uh messed up the recording we're back so as you were saying we Wait, you were not recording the entire time? No, Does anybody I, need to go I, back I momentarily stopped. Okay. Well, um, I don't think that we should leave sports yet because this is a sports podcast. And so there are a lot of important things to discuss when it comes to uh, <laughs> non-oral language and sports. Uh, for example, it just pains me that nobody has yet brought up the Finnish version of baseball called uh, Pesapallo, in which there is signing as well. But the coaches signed the players instead of using their hands, which just seems silly if you think about it, given the distance. They use a brightly colored, many-hinged fan to sign to their players. That is a real thing. Among the many other very weird things about Finnish baseball, I strongly (laughs) encourage you to look it up. Um, So that's one thing. But the other thing, um, perhaps some people heard about... um, a few years back, what was it? It was um, it was a it was a it was one of those Super Bowls where the Patriots were beaten. I think it might have been the New York Giants. And what happened was um, the New York Giants defense had figured out their their sign system during the game. And so because of that, they, they had a jump on when things were happening and what was happening, and they were able to really shut down their offense. So that's always an interesting thing. But most interesting thing about um, uh, sign language in football 
is that, of course, um, the Gallaudet, Buffalo's Gallaudet is a, is a university um, for, for deaf Americans in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, they, played, they played football for many, many years. But, uh, of course, since, since, they, since they were all deaf, they would sign to each other uh, rather than speak to each other when going to the line. And they discovered that other teams were watching them to pick up on their signs. And so it was the quarterback of Gallaudet, the deaf signer, who invented the huddle where all the players get around each other with their, you know, with the facing in, with their backs out. And they would do that so that nobody could see what they were signing to each other. And it spread from Gallaudet to football everywhere to where now the huddle is ubiquitous. Right. Because it's also good for quietly discussing your your thing in a spoken language so definitely <laughs> so yeah it 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 developed out of necessity for the uh the deaf team and it spread to the hearing teams that's great uh i've heard that story before uh, yay did you hear from me uh probably not <laughs> i want you to admit that it was better when i told it <laughs> uh sure <laughs> <laughs> Take that other person who told William the story. I'm sorry, your name's whatever. George. Are you William? William is You're not not, w- not here. William oh, is, is very busy oh, oh. working on the book for the Conlanging movie. Uh, that, must be <laughs> such a, that must be such a bummer for people listening to the podcast. Okay. So <laughs> But anyway, since he's not here so William is wrong about the following things. Number one, conlanging. Number two, everything else he says. Okay, let's get back <laughs> on to non-vocal languages. So, um, I believe we were talking about like different uses. So you can be secretive, you can, uh, or you can do it for, um, and uh, it can be in places where speech is not convenient. Uh, uh, I think you say for um, like if it's you know in a loud place or. Or um, the most common use, of course, is uh, among deaf populations, um, and this is this is actually an interesting um, thing I do want to bring up is that mm-hmm. we see that this is almost like an automatic thing when you get a certain level, a certain population of deaf people like put together, they just spontaneously create. A sign language. We see that, uh, like, um, the examples are like Nicaraguan sign, sign language, uh, where it was, uh, deaf schools coming together or Al Sayyid Bedouin sign language, where it was this particular isolated village had, um, had, um, recessive, uh, genetic deafness that, uh, you know, there just were enough deaf people there that they just started developing a sign language. Uh, so that's a, that's an interesting thing. And uh, maybe mostly interesting for linguists because linguists study that thing and see, okay, what happens when you have a language just arise out of nothing? Uh, but uh, it is sort of an, an interesting part. Um, uh, back to you, Jake. Any? Yeah, so some of the things that I wanted to note is that... I'll- a lot of sign languages are at least partially kind of iconographic. Like you may make a swimming motion that means swim, or you may like 
make your arm into an elephant's trunk or something like that, that try to try to make use of um, kind of symbols that maybe someone would do and without knowing the language. Uh, it's not, not entirely the case, but um, a lot of, a lot of those happen along can the we, way. Can we talk about iconicity a little bit? Yeah. I will yeah. try not to go on too much about this, but you know, all languages are iconic to the extent that they are able. This is the thing is that spoken languages are not really able to do it very well. But even so, you see the principles of what uh, what Heyman called iconicity everywhere. So, you know, like one of the things he pointed out that happens in, in all languages, but he was talking about spoken languages, is that the closer together two things are, the more likely they are to cohere. So, in other words, um, a, a killer is going to be much seen as much more active or much more responsible for killing somebody than um, someone who caused the death of someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just that, you know, if it's more words and the things are spread out further, the idea is that uh, whoever's saying it is less likely to be invested in what they're talking about or invested in the truth of what they're talking about. Now, when it comes to uh, a manual language, though, you have the ability to do a lot more that is iconic. And so why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. It just makes sense that you would because humans want to do that. But at the same time, what is I mean, there are many, many, many different ways that a sign can be iconic. Right. Like just based on the way something looks like if you think about. Uh, a sign that's uh, the sign for tree in ASL is like the exact same sign for something totally different in um, what was it um, in Netherlands sign language. I can't remember what that word is because I'm too far removed from my deaf language and culture class. But mm-hmm. um, they both you look at them like, oh, yeah, sure. Both of those things make sense. They're actually both iconic for what they mean. They're just two entirely different things. So it's not as if you're just going to look at it and get it. It's just that if you're going to look at it and you'll be clued into something that's close enough to it, because why wouldn't you do that? It would be really weird if all of the signs in a sign language, sign language were trying to not be iconic. It wouldn't make sense. Right. right. Um, and unless your purpose is to kind of obfuscate. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. I think, I think part of that might be, we are uh, human beings are uh, are very visual. We're very auditory too, but we're a little bit more visual. And you know, we do definitely have iconicity, like straight up clear iconicity in things like onomatopoeia. Um, but uh, you you might have a little bit more potential for it in uh, sign languages. It's a little bit. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a little hesitant to, to say so much about it. I don't know. Uh, one thing about sign languages is like a lot of the deaf sign languages, as far as I understand it, have a relatively recent origin relative to spoken language. So there might be a weird effect there. So, but as far as we know, it seems like that's true that sign languages tend to be a bit more iconic than spoken languages a bit. It's 
again, I think it's just because it's possible. Yeah. And because it's not like when these languages are created, it's not like they're created consciously. Right. And it's not like they're created um, using all the possible variables. You know, just like <laughs> it would be extraordinarily simple for for a language to have a singular, a plural, and then a special suffix for exactly six of something. Um, it would be easy to learn. It's just three forms, easy to use, um, but it just will never happen. Not because it's impossible, not because it's very difficult to process, but just because it's not useful and it's not the type of thing that would ever be created just because it was needed. It would have to be something that was created on purpose, and that's one thing that language isn't created on purpose. Right. At least natural <laughs> language. Natural language. You can do anything <laughs> you want in your consign language, but we'll we'll talk about uh, what's what's uh, natural here. Um, um, actually, yeah. okay. One more slight digression to talk about sign language, because I like this example, and I think it's directly relevant. Uh, um, so, in American Sign Language. There's a word for weak, where you take your hand and you, you, you lay it flat in the B hand shape, if you know ASL. You put it on its side and you face it towards you. You put it in front of your body. The word for weak is you make your hand into a number one and you swipe it from left to right behind your hand. You can almost think of your hand as a calendar and you're going from left to right doing the weak. Well, because of this, because that's the sign... You can actually change your hand shape to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, since you can sign all of those things with one hand in ASL and create a composite sign for week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks, nine weeks, ten weeks, all of those. And then since there is a general sense that the past is behind you, the future is in front of you, mm-hmm. you can also do five weeks from now, five weeks ago, four weeks from now, four weeks ago. And then if you go from top to bottom, that's a month. And so you can do the same thing with months, one to 10 months, one to 10 months from now, one to 10 months ago, all with one sign. And all of this is essentially morphologically realized. If there was an analog in spoken languages, it would essentially be like one word that had a billion different affixes. Now, that would never happen in a spoken language because it's not useful, it's not convenient, and it's more trouble than it's worth. In ASL, though, since it involves a hand shape that can be changed into a number anyway, it's convenient. Mm -hmm. And it's also useful because we talk about weeks and months and numbers like that. And so it just naturally happens. That's the type of thing where it's like because of the medium, you get things that you do not and would never see in a spoken language. Right. And that's important if you're going to construct a sign language because you have to you have to have an idea of what the possibilities are. This, the, the, these possibilities that, um, you can do certain things simultaneously, uh, and you can do all these, you know, little tricks, whereas spoken languages have very limited capability to do that. Um, let's, um, let's move on a little bit. I think, uh, we talked about them being, um, t- relatively iconic. Let's talk a little bit about people who uh, use different types. So we talked about we've we've been talking about sign languages, and deaf people usually have a sign language as their 
first language, and often what are called uh, CODAs, children of deaf adults, also tend to have a sign language as their first language in order to com- communicate with one or both parents. Um, and uh, there are, you know, variations. There are, um, Jake, this, this was part of your notes, blind deaf language. So people who are both blind and deaf, they cannot do typical sign languages but instead, they, the, those have to be modified to be tactile, right? Right. And so some of those versions um, include just um, something that's maybe very similar to ASL, but is like signed into someone else's hands. And so they can kind of feel the, sh- the hand shapes and the movements and develop that. Um, and then there are others. But yeah, so because of the way they need to receive the information, you make accommodations. Um, so... One of the interesting things that I hear is there's there's one version where you may sign into someone else's hands and they're feeling your signs. There's another um, option where that is sometimes used where um, you move the the blind deaf person's body to make those signs, and so they feel they feel where their body gets positioned as a way to receive that information. Right. Uh, what's the, mm-hmm. what's the name for that kinesthesia or something? The, your own sense of where your body is, but yeah, take advantage yeah. of that. So what you are describing is basically you're making some modifications on basically making a different kind of, you could almost call it like a dialect of a sign language, particularly yeah. ASL yeah. that, is communicable to someone who can't see. Um, exactly. Yeah, we might. Yeah, I don't. At that point, we might want to. We might want to just say it's a different modality of ASL, or maybe it's distinct enough to be called a, a different language. But yeah. Well, uh, I can say, just to throw this out there, a conlang example of a tactile language that's not, as far as I know, based on a uh, a uh, an existing sign language would be. Alex Fink and Sai have their gripping language, which is based on two people holding hands. And they actually, they, they use, uh, like finger position and, and different, um, different types of grips on the hand in order to communicate information. Uh, I wanted to get Sai on the show, uh, for this episode, but I wasn't able to, but, uh, that, that would be, as far as I know, that is like a a new conlang that they developed, and that so you could make a full language that requires touch. Uh, yeah, and act, they, I was just going to mention they they did a talk on that at LCC three, and the video is up, um, and it's a lot of fun because um, you know all of the attendees there uh, participated in it, so we were we were all holding hands trying to do it. Um, unfortunately for me. My hands do not work that way because <laughs> I don't actually I don't actually have a thumb. Um, I've got a a, a a second index finger um, that was kind of monkeyed around to try to become a thumb. So I couldn't do all of the things that a normal person could. But um, you know, it's it was pretty fun for everybody else. The yeah, I will find the link to that uh, that presentation and put it in the show notes. So thanks for. For that, uh, David. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe while you're there, you can find the link to the, all the videos for LCC six. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and I think one one thing that's interesting with with that idea is that, and we'll, maybe we'll talk about it more in a little bit when we talk about relation to vocaling, is that we all have these different um, signs or um, tactile information that's that makes up kind of a tacit part of our of even spoken language. But like the degree to which it's codified is um, maybe different, and how how robust it is to stand on its own. Like I, I think about like even with the hand holding, clearly that's developed to be a, a full language. But there are different ideas whether you hold someone's hand um, interlacing fingers or you hold it, you know, with just your hand, your fingers together communicates different things, right? About the kind of uh, about your relationship or something like that. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And well, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of sort of communicative stuff that's maybe technically not linguistic, but it, it's communicated through gestures or through touch or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm Italian. And so if you <laughs> actually see me talking, you will see that I, do tend to sort of punctuate my speech with gestures all the time. So, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And about most people, most people do that to, to some degree and with some variation by culture and upbringing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, you know, everybody knows, you know, waving is a either greeting or goodbye. Uh, different mm-hmm. cultures have different ideas of, like what you do with your head to say yes or no. <laughs> uh, those, those kinds of things are definitely just a part of everybody's, I guess, sort of lexicon, even though linguists don't necessarily consider them language language, but they're definitely part of our communication. But linguists do study them. So if conlangers are interested specifically in gesture, the person whose work you want to look at is Eve Sweetser. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's, she's a cognitive scientist, but she specializes in gesture, mm-hmm. has done a ton of work on it and a ton of amazing work. Um, I remember one of the things she was, she was showing us was how um, <laughs> uh, if, you're, if you have a, just a people at a, sitting around a table at dinner as they trade off telling stories. Um, this is an American group. You'll notice that whoever is speaking, people move away from them a little bit, just with their shoulders to kind of give them room. And so if you watch this kind of in fast motion without the sound off, it's almost like a mini ballet where you have the entire table kind of moving and then moving back and then moving away from somebody else. Uh, just as the conversation moves from one person to another, it's, it's extraordinary. Um, but also another um, really interesting language gesture um, effect that, that, that she showed was they, they, ha- they ran this experiment where um, this was just all done in English. They trained, um, you know, graduate students or whoever was doing this to tell these stories using gestures that were absolutely unsuited to what they were saying. 
And they had to work on it so they could do it naturally. Mm -hmm. But it would be the type of thing where they were like describing a Tom and Jerry cartoon. And so, uh, but, you know, nobody got to see it. It was the, you know, the graduate students telling the subjects about a Tom and Jerry cartoon. And then somebody else would ask the subjects to tell them what was told. And so some of them would, um, this, and this was like a cartoon where Jerry is running away from Tom and then he scurries up a drain pipe and Tom chases after him. And so they'd have one person just tell that story using the ordinary gestures. And even as you say it, you can feel yourself doing certain things. Like if you talk about Tom running, you kind of like do this thing with your hands where you mimic the motion of running. Then when he gets to the drain pipe, you uh, do this gesture of basically climbing up a drain pipe. What they would have one uh, of the graduate students do they would have them do totally opposite gestures. So like when they got to the drain pipe, they would be saying, and, you know, and Jerry ran up the drain pipe and Tom, you know, chased him up the drain pipe. So they would say that, but the gestures they would do would make it look like Jerry was climbing the stairs and then Tom was racing up the stairs after him, despite the fact that they were saying drain pipe. Then when they went to the subjects, yeah, then when they went to the subjects and had them repeat the story, more often than not, they would say that they both went up the stairs. Okay. I can imagine the gestures. I don't know, you know, I'd have to look at the paper to see if I'm right, but I can like imagine like climbing the, to, to drain the drain pipe. I'm imagining like doing like a swooping motion straight up, right? Whereas climbing the yeah, stairs, it's alternating. like hit each yeah. stair on the way up with one hand, right? Yeah, and instead of going straight up, you're going up at an angle. Right. You know? Yeah. And and so that was just like, it's it's like that, it was all just English. And these were all native English speakers. And these were very understandable English sentences. And yet the gesture, just the gesture, totally threw them off and made them misremember what it was they were told. Right. Because we're we're gaining contextual information for that you know that that makes that makes a lot of sense you know we're trying to figure out what's being said with a lot of context um let's actually move on a little bit uh uh, there's a little bit more um yeah uh you said there there's such such a thing as tactile lip reading i'm not sure if i would be very comfortable with that but (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but I, I suppose if you are working with someone who is uh, deaf and blind, that you may want that. It it has to. You essentially put a couple fingers over over the mouth, uh, and then I guess even maybe one finger or the thumb on the um, larynx. So you well the outside. Yeah. Uh, so you get kind of a feel for the way they're moving their mouth and whether they're um, voicing or not. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Which I can imagine would be. So it's so it's actually you're getting more information than regular rip, lip reading because regular lip reading. Yeah. You don't get voicing. You don't get nasality. You you, you, you lose a lot of information. Um, right. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So that that's the idea is that they're they're basically trying to make ways for people who do like a, a connection between people who. Yeah. can speak in here versus people who can't. Yeah. Um, it's definitely an interesting thing of um 
you know, that's like a modality for spoken language. So there's a difference right. between an entirely, you know, uh, a an entire language that's in a different modality and finding a different modality for spoken language, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, let's move on to uh, the next thing, the linguistic environment. So, like, there's a question of what other languages are there out there? So, like, most ASL speakers... I think we'll have some level of uh, of uh, bilingualism with English, right? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, even just kind of moving around, especially for those who don't live in a an area where they're where they have a thick, you know, a, a rich kind of deaf community, um, they're going to be forced into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot, all many, many choose to interact with hearing speaking people right and so they're they're often going to have to to deal with the local spoken language even if it's just in text right even if they they have been deaf since birth and didn't learn how to speak or something like that so that's that's um an interesting thing you you have a note here there is a a black asl dialect yeah um just just like um just like the AAV, there's also same same style with um, sign language. Uh, they pick a lot of a lot of their signs are accustomed to the speech patterns and um, kind of phrases that come out of um, black communities. Oh, really? In the U.S. So there's some some influence from AAV. That's that's interesting. Um, you know, there's there's dialects for everything. Yeah, of course there there's are. like there's like there's like three different ASL dialects in Philadelphia depending on what neighborhood you grew up in. That's it's like, great. It's yeah. just and it's it's mainly vocabulary. Um, and it's the type of thing where there there was also when um, when people were learning ASL in the especially in the early part of the 20th century, many signers would learn ASL when they went to a regional school. So before that, it was just home sign. Maybe they might know somebody who who knew ASL and pick up a little bit, but they would really learn it at a regional school. And so what would happen is um, different dialects emerged from people who went to those regional schools. Right. And often one of the first things that you would do when you would meet a new signer is ask them what school they went to. So you kind of knew. And so, yeah, like when you're you're learning uh, ASL now, it's like one of the things they do is they teach you when it comes to certain signs. Like for us, it was um, when I was learning in San Diego, it was always um, Northern California versus where we were. And I would say, okay, well, this is the sign that they use for this up here, and this is a sign that we use down here. Um, and then sometimes he would show us, and this is a sign you'll see for people like from New York and things like that. But um, that's just ubiquitous. Right. That I And, I, yeah, I don't mean to – you know, but we had a note about it, so I uh, I mentioned. But yeah, language always has variation. Even if you have a language that's spoken by two people, they will have different idiolects. So uh, that's not particularly surprising, but it's good to know. <laughs> so uh, what communication technologies are used? This is actually one thing is, um, as far as I know... I don't think there's any sign language that is regularly written. There are, there, there have been attempts to create writing systems for ASL, 
but none of them caught on. Things like sign writing and stuff. They, they right. just aren't, they aren't used. Um, you know, I think a lot of communication, a lot of like fixed communication is done with video and such. So that's an interesting note about it. You, you, you might expect that it would be like easy, quote unquote, easy to make a, a writing system for a sign language. But in, at, at the same time, even though it's all visual, like you could go from abstracting from pictures at the same time, you've got lots of simultaneous things happening. So it might be harder than you expect to represent it. Now, probably the most difficult thing, incidentally, what, what a lot of signers do, at least in America is they text, Right. Um, they actually text, they text more than video. Um, and just use English words and often it'll, it'll end up in an ASL order, Mm -hmm. but, um, they use that more than anything else. Mm -hmm. But, um, the key problem when it comes to writing down a a sign language is that there is, there are certain things that you can do in a manual language that are just incredibly inconvenient for writing. So you can like, you know, ASL has a bunch of signs where you could say, this is the sign for it. And they'll even have modifications, but you can handle that with like a, for example, for a look at, you know, it's got a hand shape, uh, a V hand shape that kind of points out, um, away from the eyes and you can modify it in a number of ways so that you can do like, you know, you can move it slowly, uh, far away for, for like gazing. Um, you can do it quick for just glancing. You can have a, a kind of circular hand shape where it, it uh, rhythmically goes kind of like, you know, forward, then down in a loop, then forward, then down a loop and forward. And that's looking and looking and looking or, or kind of like staring at. Um, you can imagine doing that in in a written language any number of ways. You can handle that. The thing that you can't handle is the stuff that just gets innovative on innovated on the fly. It would be kind of like if... Um, if in English there was just a sign, uh, if in English if there was a glyph for every single word, period, and you wanted to use that writing system to write something like enuctitude, where, you know, you build a lot of words on the fly that get really big and are probably only used once. Hmm. It would be incomprehensible to use a, a glyph, one glyph for one word system for that. That's the same thing that happens with sign languages, where you just use some sort of a handshake classifier that is being used as a pronoun to refer to something that's already active in the discourse. And then you basically just freely move those things around to indicate some sort of a movement that happens with that one and maybe with respect to some other thing. (laughs) So that, like, you could actually have, you know, if you're already talking about a car and you're talking about a car crashing... You can talk about a car where it's just like maybe somebody was texting and they weren't paying attention, so they just go straight on and move straight into your hand and hit something else. Or you could talk about a car that's on an icy road and use your hand to show that it's swerving, 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 and then finally veers off to one direction or another direction or another direction, faster, slower. Any type of infinite number of things that you can do with your hand is basically just a verb in ASL. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that you just cannot capture in writing unless you're going to be drawing a picture. And um, and then, of course, if you imagine fontifying that, yeah. it's just impossible. Yeah, that, 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 that is a lot of stuff, uh, difficult things. And part of it might also be status. These are, you know, languages that are 
newer, developed a long time after writing came about, and we're our writing the way that we write things is geared towards linear um, spoken mm -hmm. language. Yeah, there would be absolutely. interesting to see what would happen in a society that had only sign language and then developed writing. But uh, maybe that's a th thought experiment people can come up with. That would be cool. That would be awesome. Yeah. Like, um, I'm going to skip over a few things. I kind of want to get a little into, um, like, like, um, some nitty gritty stuff. So, um, yeah, sure. Uh, let's, um, let's talk about relation to vocal language later. And I want to talk about, uh, so, um, your third part here is points of articulation. I'm going to talk about this is, Phonology. So yeah. established sign languages, at least, definitely have phonology. They have minimal pairs. They have feature assimilation. They have phonological constraints. Uh, I'm, I'm going to link to uh, something uh, that that uh, a paper that explains a little bit about that. Um, uh, Jake, you listed out sort of the different kinds of articulation you you have. Um, yeah. So clearly, I mean, obviously the hands are a big deal, but that involves um, things like orientation. So I can do a V where my palm is out toward the person I'm signing to or a two where the palm is toward me. Um, Those are ASL then, signs, right? The, a, yeah. The, mm -hmm. the V hand shape, if you're reversing orientation, it means two. Right, yeah. And then if you give it a twist, I mean, that's a movement, but a twist can mean second. Mm -hmm. So it's like uh, the second place thing. And then, of course, yeah, there are lots of hand shapes. And then kind of as David pointed out, hand shapes also can have variations on them, right? So we can have the V hand shape. We can have the bent V. Mm -hmm. So um, and then you kind of can do a lot of those. So um, a minimal pair for that would be if you put um, a five on your forehead, then that's dad. But if you, um, your ring finger and your, um, your pinky come down, then that's a three hand shape. And that on your forehead in the same place and same orientation is rooster. Mm -hmm. So you have, uh, you can have that's, that. That's touching, touching your thumb to the forehead. Right. With your thumb to the forehead. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then you, you may have rules about, um, some, some, Signs are one-hand signs. Some signs are two hands. Some kind of adjust depending on the situation. Um, uh, yeah, actually, that's a key point to bring up. You'll see, you'll see signers. You think about there are lots of signs that require two hands, but lots of signers will sign while they drive to the person in the passenger seat, and they're just doing it with one hand. Um, and they just it's just kind of a adjust straight on the fly, and you can kind of figure out when a sign is supposed to be two hands and they're just doing it with one. Right. Pretty cool. Yeah. And so in ASL, um, you have rules about using dominant hand and non-dominant hand, um, which, you know, maybe not every sign language would have to have that, or they might designate a very particular hand. Yeah. That's that actually an interesting used. thing is that it's, it's not right and left. It's dominant, non-dominant. So mm -hmm. it's it, whether you're right-handed or left-handed, you are going to do do things differently. I I would actually be interested to investigate and see if other sign languages do that because I have heard that ASL has 
Um, but is the non-dominant and dominant contrastive in any way? Like, do you have minimal pairs? Hmm? David? Oh, so, uh, I, I, I see what you mean, where it's like you would, <laughs> like uh, the, the verb for sit would be dominant hand going to non-dominant hand, but doing it the opposite way would mean something different. I am almost certain that no, that that does not happen. Yeah. Maybe it's more of a prosodic thing or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and then, so non-dominant hands. So when you're doing a two-hand sign, you have certain grammatically acceptable styles of signs. One where your two hands are symmetric. So they're kind of from the, you know, from the symmetry of your body. They're doing the same thing, maybe both going uh, away from your body or both going toward the center. Then there are um, things like walk or something like that where you might have um, the hands kind of moving like your feet would one after the other. Or um, like the sign for snow, you kind of wiggle your fingers, but both of your hands move to the left together, then move to the right together like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or you might have in the situation where you're using two hands, but one one is the active dominant hand and the other is functions kind of as a prop. Mm-hmm. And then it's my understanding that in those situations, the the non-dominant hand only has a, a certain number of kind of, oh, what do they call them? Kind of the acceptable hand shapes is limited. There. Oh, that's interesting. At least for ASL. Right, for ASL. Okay. Right. So any of these, any of these are, of course, choices that a conlanger could choose differently on. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. definitely something it, you want to investigate in in some detail. Um, it is. I will say though, if you allow for human beings that could be left or right-handed, it is hard to imagine um, a switch between, uh, you know, a, a minimal pair switching the dominant and non-dominant hand. If you had a language that absolutely prescribed that only one hand was going to be the dominant hand, even if you happen to be opposite handed, then maybe, but I mean, yeah, that that starts to get into alien territory. I think where we're, we're forgetting about humans and talking about something that's always, uh, always dominant on one side, which is, no, 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 no. Well, yeah. Well, I either that or you just said that linguistically you always used your right hand yeah. right. as the dominant hand, even if you happen to be left-handed. You could imagine that, though. I don't think it. It. I personally don't think it happens. Right. I. I'd be happy to be proven wrong. In that case only, I think you could have a switch like that. Minimal pairs. Yeah. People. People. There are still places where people who are left-handed are required to learn to write with their right hand, but that's a different sort of scenario than... Yeah, the White House. Ooh. Sorry. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, um, but uh, yeah, so that's interesting. So, lots of things, orientation and shape of the hand, and, you know, hand shape is all, like, position of all your fingers. Um there and you know you can use one hand or two hands um there's the position of the sign so uh i know this one the um uh jake you wrote down as an example mom and dad is a minimal pair for position where you have dad you put that five hand shape with the thumb against the forehead mom it's against the chin right mm-hmm. 
apple and onion are even closer. It's the same gesture, but one is next to your cheek for apple, and the other next to your eye for onion. Oh, oh, because you're crying. Yeah, because <laughs> they're so awful. <laughs> well, that's um. So, um, <laughs> and but your whole there's there's locations all all over your body, of course. Um, right. So and and some of those locations become allophones, like they're. Uh, there's some debate on this, but some some people will say, if you're like signing thank you, you can sign it off your lips or off your chin, and it doesn't make any difference. Some people yeah. might feel like it matters, but yeah, yeah, I know that there's actually um, an interesting analog to that. Like we know in we know in in English that a and e are phonemes, so that you can have make and mech are totally different words, and yet the choice of them isn't as important in something like negative and negative um, or Megan and Megan. It's impossible to imagine those being different words. The only thing is that some people may notice if you use one or the other. It may be kind of a a regional thing. And especially if somebody's name is Megan, they might have an opinion about which one they prefer. (laughs) But that's, that's, that's that's really it. See the same kind of thing happening with ASL, where there are certain distinctions that are very, very important to distinguish lexemes. But then in other circumstances, it's actually not important, and it's kind of the same thing. Um, and uh, you also, of course, see uh, allophony happening. Um, this is kind of hard to explain, but if you take your, your flat hands and you run them down the sides of your body, kind of in front of you, that's person. And you can use that as an agentive suffix. And when it's used with teach, for example, teach is always done up near the head. And so teacher, you start up off the head and then go down Mm -hmm. right from there. Whereas if you're doing student, student is typically done in front of the body. And so there it's uh, the the hands down thing. It tends to be much shorter or, or narrower because the hands are closer together for that one than they are for teach, and also much lower. And it's just a a natural byproduct of the place of it. So this is just a a nice example of allophony. A a, a near analog would be high-low vowel harmony, where you get the high version next to high vowels and the low version gets next to low vowels. Well, that's that's just... um, That's basically just an assimilation rule, right? So... um, Yep. You're, exactly. you're, you assimilate to the place of the, the previous sound. It's a progressive assimilation. Um, yeah. I think, uh, I saw, um, there was a, actually an LCC, um, presentation where somebody showed hand shape assimilation too, where I think it was someone signing like a C and an E right next to each other. And the E was yep. influenced by the shape of the C. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll try to find that video. Um, so there, there's lots of that kind of thing. So let's let's just go through. There's also motion. So there's different ty- kinds of motion, and you can also be the speed of the motion can be important, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, I mean, so those can be very different. And, and like David said earlier, especially with motion, there can be so much variation. Mm-hmm. And kind of whether you wiggle it, whether you bounce it whether you just bring it straight through and and yeah. I mean, of course that will make more sense in some with some signs than others 
Like, I don't, I don't know what you would do. Like if you were doing the difference between mom and grandma, but you wiggled it. I, I don't know if that would convey anything besides <laughs> that you're str- you know, mm-hmm. struggling. But yeah, you, that's the thing though, because the modality allows it because, uh, I guess the phonology, the, the medium allows it, you can always do it. So it's super easy to just with sit down, you know, change it to sit down shakily, you know, sit mm-hmm. down slowly, sit down fast. It's super easy. So it's super easy to just modify the verb in that way, where it's, um, if you're going to do that in a, in a, in a spoken language, the only thing that you can do is lengthen the vowel, you know? Um, and that only works, you know, with certain things in certain ways. So it's like, so it's like, and he slowly stands up. Yeah, you, know, you can do that type of a thing, but that's it. You can't really do anything else unless the morphology supports it. Right. Yeah. And then um, a last thing that uh, that's there is um, I'm just going to talk about call these just the generally the non-manual markers. It's mostly facial expression. So the thing that people will know may may know already is uh, the eyebrows are used to mark questions in ASL. Um, mm-hmm. In ASL, um, uh, I didn't know this actually, but Jake, you wrote down that WH questions are marked with the eyebrows um, moved down, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Like furrowed. Yeah. yeah. And then mm-hmm. yes, no questions. You put your eyebrows up. Yep. Right. So that's. That's an interesting thing, but also the position of your mouth, the position of your eyes can um, alter meanings. Yeah. Also, the eyebrows up marks topics. It's very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, it's the equivalent of going no, 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 no. You know, it's like that in English. Um, but uh, the uh, mouth position, yeah. Some there are lots of signs that actually require mouth shape. Either you know pursing the lips or raising them really loud, uh, or, or you know raising them re- or, or opening the mouth really wide. Um, there was there was one sign where he, he um, the you know, the the signer he taught me he's, he was deaf um, you know deaf from birth. He insisted you had to make a noise when you did it, which was with the the distal demonstrative. Um, so there's you know um, there's you know this here, which is nearby. In which case you actually kind of pull your lips back uh, and and kind of grit your teeth. So it's like nearby, uh, that kind of thing. And there's the medial one where you just kind of close your lips. And then for the far one, he said, you have to say cha. Uh-huh. And he said, like, you have to do it. And so, like, it's kind of like you do a cha. And it's like you open your mouth like that <laughs> for um, the this uh, or here, there, yonder distinction. Yeah. Yeah, the cha seems to be like kind of like an augment of you just like to make something bigger you have to yeah yeah interesting <laughs> it's so cool it's so cool uh yeah yeah i love it yeah i wish i, wish I could have spent more time so if, yeah i feel like if you're making a conling you want to think about what what points of articulation or what's your phonology and you have a lot to work with and then some things might not get used some things do and some things might be able to be used and be generative, or some things might be felt as ungrammatical. 
depending on how. Yeah, it all sort of depends. And uh, and just to say, you know, there's lots of your shoulders, your your body, your legs can even be like places and such. Um, uh, let, I want to make a couple more notes on phonology and then let's move on a little bit mm-hmm. into a little bit more grammatical stuff. Um, one thing is, um, so we already said, okay, sign languages had phonology. We've discussed examples of assimilation of minimal pairs and such, of some constraints that can occur. Uh, we've discussed that they're a little bit less linear. Um, one thing, um, and this is, there, I found the paper that claims this. Um, I haven't had time to go over it really thoroughly, but um, uh, so there's a study on Al-Sayed Bedouin sign language, which, uh, uh, you know, it's a very new sign language. It only, um, I think it's, it's um, like 70 years old, maybe a little more. Uh, and there are the, some studies have shown that this is like, it has syntax, it is communicative as a language, but in that case, it doesn't seem to have systematic phonology. So, and by phonology, I mean like you can break it down into non-meaningful units that combine into something meaningful, right? Mm-hmm. So the, they studied these and they, it seems more like people are, that there's like a prototype that people are approximating, but they're not systematically breaking thing signs down into units. But that phonology might be sort of emerging. So that might be if you're conlanging for a con world and you have like a very new sign language that is just emerging and maybe like it's just the first, uh, like the second generation that has learned it as a, Native language versus the first one that that started the sort of home sign or pigeon sign language, then it's a possibility that it might not be fully phonological. It might just be, you know, the variations are more random and it's just sort of people attempting the gestalt sign. Uh, so uh, that's, you know. You can look at that paper and evaluate for yourself how true you think that is, but there's that claim out there that maybe, and you might, that might even extend to spoken language. We don't have any evidence for how spoken languages arise de novo, right? That there's always some source uh, for anything we know of. So maybe the first spoken languages were like that, where people were just sort of generally imitating the sounds each other was making without systematically breaking them down. Mm. But the word for peanut was always the same. It was always peanut. (laughs) It's just a fact. But I don't know. I was just going to throw that out there. Let's, but uh, we can, we can move on a little bit from that. I don't want to dwell on that too much, but um, all right, Jake, this is one of your notes, different body parts, may function differently or functions may overlap? Uh, yeah, so I, just like we talked about with the eyebrows, right, they they serve a few functions, but generally they're not like signs in themselves that we might, you know, we might not consider those. But then there, you can also, with your hands, you can kind of do kind of your root signs or they can also be used as 
as markers for other things, you know, classifiers, mm-hmm. those types of things. So it may be that certain certain body parts function just in particular ways or um and that may be separate from what any other body part could do or there may be situations where you can have classifiers on your hands on your eyebrows or whatever and kind of do different stuff like that um we already we already talked about the person marker and that sort of you can kind of like our the english er you can put that on top of or after i guess yeah a lot of a lot of different things right um I want to mention one thing that doesn't seem to be here is um, uh, at least ASL, and I think this has been seen in other sign languages too, there's a class of verbs that agree with subject and object, right? And the agreement is marked by pointing, right? Uh, David, you actually mentioned look at earlier, right? And look at Mm -hmm. um, has you... It's it's a, a V shape, and you're pointing, uh, you're pointing from one place, and then at one place, and then another place. But if it's I look at you, I point at my eyes, and then I point at you, right? If it's you look at me, I look point at the the interlocutor, and then I point at myself. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and what I'm racking my brain here for, though is that there are certain verbs that only agree with the object just because of the way that they're signed. Mm. Like, it's actually impossible for you to, to do it any other way. Mm. And so for that, you just have to use the pronoun. It's kind of interesting. But, right. gosh, it is just completely escaping me. Um, copy. No, no, no. Copy. Copy, you can do. Um, what about Look give? at, you can do. Give, give, you can do, okay. you can do, give me, give you, he gives him. You also do look at him and, and copy each other. Gosh, what was, well, oh, I mean, it's killing people me. People can look it up and see, but, uh, that's, that's an interesting, uh, note. Uh, the, the other thing about that, uh, we mentioned this in a, an earlier episode when we were, we were talking about things like Logophor and keeping track of reference is that, for anyone who's actually, you know, in the room with you, you can just point to them when you're doing this indication, either the verb agreement or just the the general, like, you point at someone as a pronoun, right? But then mm-hmm. in discourse where you're talking about someone not present, you sign their name or sign a description and then put that in some space around your signing space. And then when you yeah. want to refer back to them, you point there, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's you, very. You can very also handy. put it on your. You can also put it on your finger, right? Like yep. You can put it on. You can have if you're talking about three different people, you might put one on your pointer finger, one on your middle, and kind of be able to move so back. You, you start. You start with your thumb, though. Yeah. Oh, okay. Due to the influence of French sign language, uh, once American sign language came, that's that's also why the word for twenty is you put your thumb and and pointer finger together. Because and then why the word for ten is wiggling the thumb because that one is the one. Mm. Well, for French. But that's another choice you can choose. You can start with the index finger for counting, or with the thumb, or maybe with your pinky finger. That might be the that gets into a little difficulty when you have because of the connection between the ring finger and the middle finger. But uh, 
you might be able to do it. So that's, that's some stuff people can experiment with and, and see what, how they're going to do that kind of counting stuff. We're getting, uh, we're, we are getting way over time. So, um, I want to jump back to this section that I skipped earlier and talk about just to close things out. Uh, okay. what was the, um, relation to vocal language, right? Mm. So yeah. as conlangers, if we're going to be conlanging, we're probably more interested in like full sign languages. Um, and sign languages are definitely separate from spoken languages. Uh, David talked about how American sign language is related to French sign language. British sign language is totally unrelated, totally different. Even though, you know, the U.S. and Britain speak English, it's completely disconnected from the spoken language. Um, That's actually one reason that uh, people were interested in um, Alcide Bedouin sign language because it seems to have features that don't occur in Hebrew or Arabic, which is in language where it's spoken, it's spoken, uh, in, uh, Israel or can we say we speak a sign language, but anyway, um, uh, and so they sort of assume that the, like the core deaf speakers are isolated from those other languages and not influenced from by them. So that's definitely true that there are, Full sign languages, you can create a full sign language with no reference to speaking, but they are actually manually coded uh, sign languages as well. Man- manually coded spoken languages as well, like signed mm-hmm. exact English, right? Where right. It's, not a lang- it's not a language. Right, it's a code. It's, a, it's yeah, like yeah. a relax. It's a, it's a modality. Yeah. yeah. You're, I guess it's basically just what mostly... ASL signs and some finger spelling just done sequentially in English word order, right? Yeah. It's it's what soccer moms learn if they have a deaf child. <laughs> David, yeah. I guess David doesn't like it's true. We just no, have to I know, but... but I mean, you know, this is this this is a thing that exists, so it yeah, and it has a distinction between A and Ann. Yeah. <laughs> that's ridiculous. That's 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 Kind of hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they, they felt the need to do that. Um, yeah. But that's but more you know, a, well, a, a way to link someone who who is deaf to the English-speaking community, not as a, or vice versa, but not. Right. right. Not, so. yeah. And definitely, not as- I have heard that, like, deaf people have sometimes negative views, viewed, uh, views of that those signed codes and such. Um, uh, there, but at the same, but, you know, moving back, um, well, there are other relationships between, um, spoken languages and sign languages, definitely. particularly like in ASL and English, the relationship is very similar to the relationship between English and Latin right. or Greek. A lot of, a lot of borrowings for technical terms and the way that the borrowings work in ASL Obviously, sometimes it's finger spelling, but more often than that, it's taking the the first written letter of it. Um, so not the first sound, but the first written letter of whatever the word is and applying it to some other sign that makes sense. Right. So, for example, um, the words uh, phonology, morphology and syntax 
and ASL all have the same motion. And that motion is you can imagine doing this with two hands, an old reel-to-reel tape. <laughs> you're kind of like moving. Yeah, you're moving your hands in, in like uh, circles like that. But then phonology, you do it with both of your hands making a P hand shape. For morphology, it's with an M hand shape. And for syntax, it's with an S hand shape. Ah, that's that's cool. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah, and that kind of initializing has su- different, you know, there are sometimes that's like viewed as completely acceptable. Sometimes it's viewed as like a cheap way to build a word or, you know, depending on who yeah, you yeah. are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely, um, that's definitely something I've heard that there's also a lot of like calcs loan translations to where like they just build the same compound that English has with the ASL signs. Um, uh, so that's definitely, um, uh, true. It is interesting to think about how you borrow from a spoken language into a sign language or how you would do vice versa. That, that seems even, uh, more difficult. Um, you might only be able to do some loan translations in, in some cases, but yeah, um, I, I was just thinking like one. So, um, I mean, if if the speaking population is also um, seeing, then you can borrow in fairly directly, borrow a sign in, which happens sometimes. Even at uh, my kid's school, they use the, like, me and you sign hmm. um, as a way for, like, if, if a student or a teacher is telling a story or sharing with the class something and the other kids, like, are identifying with that then they'll do that sign as kind of a way to to not interrupt verbally but also express their connection with the story are you talking about the um the dual inclusive pronoun yeah the 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 y shape where you you know put your thumb between you and the pinky toward the person it's a k hand shape yeah uh no a, a y um because i'm i was i was okay that that means same Oh, that means same. Well, maybe see people uh, borrowed it and got it wrong. That happens a lot. Well, <laughs> well it's, no, I mean, it's, you can it functions in that way. Yeah. It means you can use it as a verb in the same way that we say same now, but it like means like you know I agree with you that yeah. kind of thing. Uh, yeah, that's but then that's um, the one with the K handshake that's actually just a dual inclusive pronoun. But you can also do it with um, others. Uh, so it's like a dual pronoun. So you can, like do me and him. By, by signing at yourself into the side. It's pretty oh, cool. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so there's... Um, uh, so we mentioned before that a lot of uh, ASL speakers are going to be bilingual in whatever the dominant spoken language is around. Uh, so those are bimodal bilinguals. Um, uh, and uh, there might be sort of an issue of like the 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 social environment depending on like how big the deaf community is in an area right and how mm-hmm. what proportion of the population they are then there's issues of you will have a lot of if there's a lot you know a huge proportion of deaf people maybe everybody's going to be bilingual right but if you have a smaller population of deaf people then there's going to be a whole lot of 
monolingual or at least monomodal speak uh, people who who do not sign, and then people have got to navigate with interpret interpreters and such. Um, so that's an yeah, interesting. The, hmm? One of the more interesting uh, communities that we've had in America was uh, Martha's Vineyard. And I forget if this was the 19th century or the 18th century, but um, it was uh, there was just an incident where or there was there was a time where it was like almost up to 50 percent of uh, the island was deaf Mm -hmm. or just the the residents of that island. So everybody, everybody used uh, was fluent in the sign language there. And so that's one to look up. Right. So uh, there's there's so. That's that's a lot of sort of general stuff. There's some stuff we didn't get to, but I think we need to wrap up this episode. Um, uh, Jake, you've got to leave at three, right? So do hmm? yes, I have to pick up the kids. Yeah, and I want to give you some time to get ready to do that. And uh, also, we're almost an hour and a half running, so uh, uh, I might have to cut out a few of uh, David's asides. You'll have to see about that. Uh, But, um, well, um, that's uh, sign languages and a little bit about non-focal language in general. We didn't get so far into other things, but, uh, you know, mostly about sign languages. Didn't talk about my visual language, man. Well. My cool visual language X. Well, maybe sometime we can feature that as a conlang and do a whole episode. Uh, you, you you let me know if you want to do that. Okay, David? <laughs> Unless yeah. I want to do unwalls instead. I don't know. How, how would you what? say that? I've heard unals. Unals? The yeah. One. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. Uh, but... Yeah. You could do that. You do an episode on that and how um, arrival is garbage at the same time. Whatever. <laughs> Maybe you could just uh, put I that on your. I still haven't seen arrival. I on need your to vlog. see it uh, sometime soon. Anyway, it's a plane movie. It's good for watching on an airplane. <laughs> so, if you were going to say Canada at some point in time in the near future, right? We have uh, LCC seven. When is that, David? I don't know. I'm not going. You're not going? <laughs> no. Let me look it up so that I can make it's, the proper it's, announcement. It's, it's during San Diego Comic-Con. Oh, dear. Okay. Absolutely brilliant scheduling. Um, it's... Uh, I got it. Um, July 21st through the 23rd in Calgary, Alberta, Canada at the University of Calgary. Uh, I will link to the uh, the LCS page about it, so people can go on it. So, um, so you've got some time to plan for that. A little bit of time, uh, a little over a month for you to figure that out. Get registered. Get uh, plane tickets if you need it. And uh, there's there's plenty of. I think they have information about transportation and lodging and stuff here yeah so i will link to that uh also at the seventh language creation conference um the conlanging movie 
will be premiering. Uh, that's Britton Watkins' uh, Conlanging movie, the documentary. So uh, if you want to be the f- one of the first people to see that, you've got to go. I think you have to actually go there. I don't think that's going to be live streamed. Uh, so, mm, yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, that's that announcement. And uh, does anyone have anything else to say? Uh, I don't think so. Just uh, when if you're making a manual language, think about who's using it for what purpose, and then what are your phonemes going to be? Yeah. Well, yes, that's definitely things that you're going to start with. Um, and, and you know, no, hmm? no, no comment at all. How uh, I am two weeks into teaching a course on language creation at UC Berkeley. Yes, definitely. Yes, that's right. You're you're teaching the the that course. Is that how's that going? I guess people can't jump into that now. No, but man, so six week course, four days a week. Day one was welcome to class. Day two was allophony. Day three was sound change. <laughs> you can just imagine. That's great. It's yeah, they're already, they're currently right now evolving their case systems and number systems and genders if they if they want them. They have to do two of those three. Oh, <laughs> well, that's, that's a good thing. Give them a choice. Well, um, yeah. yeah. I hope that goes well for you, David. I hope that uh, I, you can do that more often. Hmm? I hope it goes well. Well, for them, that's that's what I hope. Yes, <laughs> this is going to be a tough weekend. More more conlanging classes is always good. That's that's something I would love to do in the future sometime. Um, and you should just do it, Mister At a University. I'm not even at a university. I have to fly up there. Yeah. Well, that's well. I will. Uh, I will consider that. I'm working on my dissertation right now. I I'm, don't have quite that freedom yet. So. We will be. Uh, I'm working on your dissertation just as much at the moment. <laughs> anyway, we've made the same amount of progress on your dissertation during this podcast. Yeah, I gotta <laughs> still run the podcast. Anyway, so. <laughs> All right, no uh, more, no more comments from David. So I'm just gonna say, <laughs> happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash conlangery. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, and on Tumblr now. All of those you just find Conlangery. Our web space is provided by the Language Creation Society. Our theme music is by Null Device. And our new site was designed by Bianca Richards. 